The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The preaching passage this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 23, and we're going to begin in verse 8. 2 Samuel 23, 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Basabeth, Atakamanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shema of Harad, Elika of Harad, Helez the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezar of Anathoth, Mebunai the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Mahari of Netopha, Helab the son of Bena of Netopha, Ittai, the son of Ribai, of Gebeah, of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah, of Pirathon, Hidai, of the brooks of Gash, 
Abi Albon, the Arbonite, Arbathai, Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Baharim, Elihaba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shema, the Hebrewite, Ahiam, the son of Sherar, the Hebrewite, Eliphalet, the son of Ashbi, of Maacah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro, of Carmel, Perari, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Benai, the Gadite, Zelech, the Ammonite, Nahari of Beharoth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Garib the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. I'll never forget the championship match of JV District Tennis my freshman year. I was playing a kid, I don't remember his name, it's not worth mentioning to be honest with you. He's like that Egyptian in the text, it's just not worth preserving his real name. It was a best of three sets, and I was down one set to none, and in the second set, I was down five nothing. For all of you who have never played tennis before, what that means is I was one short little game away from losing JV District Championship. So if he wins one more game, I lose. Uh, on his serve, he took me to match point, which means at this point my back was literally against the wall. I guess figuratively against the wall. But I fought back to win that game. I chipped away, and eventually I won the set. And now it was even, one set apiece. And during changeover, as I went to grab my water bottle, I heard a crack. You might be thinking, as I did, is that his tennis racket? Was he mad? Is he throwing a fit? I turned over to look. I didn't see anything. Turns out that loud crack that I heard ringing in my ears was his spirit. I had crushed it. <laughs> I knew victory was well in hand. I went on to win the third set six to nothing and took home the JV district title. The next year, a full one year later, my coach was in the same room as his coach. And his coach made his way across the room to talk to my coach. And he said, you know, that guy of mine, whose name we've all forgotten, still talks about that match. And the one that got away, as my coach told me that story, of course, just broke me up, you know, knowing that there was somebody out there still wallowing in the shame of the loss. We all have stories of our former days of glory, you know, that we tell our kids, like, you know, I, I, it, was, it was this way, and, 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 and this is what I did, and, and man, and they, they all kind of have the same little buildup, and my back was against the wall, and, and, and at some point in the story, you get to the point where you say, and there I was, right? It's where the point of the story all turns. And at the end of the story, we receive the glory for winning it all. If you were only there, kid, you would know that I am the stuff of legend. The passage that's in front of us is relatable on, at least from, from one perspective. If for no other reason, then we understand those kinds of stories 
that are the stuff of legend and that typically come from things like war. It's where we get our military heroes like you think of George Washington or Patton or many of these military heroes that we've known in the past. But it's not just war. It also comes from things like sports in our culture. Michael Jordan has his flu game. If you know, you know. The day he was sick with the flu and still managed to beat the Utah Jazz, which is probably actually food poisoning, but just never, never mind. The day the U.S. hockey team defeated the Russians and the miracle on ice. Do you believe in miracles? Yes, Al Michaels says. Auburn's utter collapse in the last two minutes of the Iron Bowl. <laughs> and Alabama catching the improbable Hail Mary at the very end of the game in the corner of the end zone to snatch defeat. Snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. We could live forever on Auburn's collapse, but I'll just move on. What's here in front of us is more than simply a history book of the famous soldiers in David's military. This might be another one of those passages that if you were reading in the morning in your devotional, you, you get to and you just kind of read through all those names and you kind of mumble through them because you don't want to try to pronounce them. And then you get to the end and you quickly move on to the next passage. But as we've seen so many times with passages like that, what's here is more than simply just a list of names. Remember, we are introduced... Uh, in verse 8 here, to David's mighty men. But we've actually seen these men before. They don't take up a whole lot of the pages of Scripture. You don't see them very often. But you do get very brief glimpses into their function in David's military. They're mentioned briefly. We know about them that they are a group of elite fighters. After Absalom runs David out of town... There's a man named Hushai, who is actually David's friend and spy, who tells Absalom in 2 Samuel 17, verse 8, should show up on the screen behind me. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. So we know that they are a group of elite fighters. They are experts in war. They, along with David. We also know that one of their functions was that they guarded David really closely. So they're like a, a secret service, so to speak. They guarded, guarded David really closely. And we find this out as David is on his way out of town, as Absalom has run him out of town. We find out in 2 Samuel 16, 6, it says, And he threw stones at David, and that all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left hand. So they're guarding David as he's going out of town. They function like a secret service. But in addition to all of those things, they would also coordinate and lead the military as a whole anytime the, there was like a special mission or the odds were stacked against them. They were the ones that David sent to the front line to coordinate the military. We find that out in 2 Samuel 10, verses 6 to 7. He says, when the, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehov and the Syrians of Zobah 
20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tov, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. So this passage is in some ways looking at David's military, especially those soldiers that made up something of a special forces unit in David's military, a SEAL Team 6, if you will, of David's military and all the many things that they did. But if you remember, in the previous passage, the context that this passage falls in is really important. If you go all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 23, then you'll see that the first seven verses there that are laid out is, is David's last words to Israel. We talked about these last week. This is like an edict, the last writing, if you will, that's sort of read before the people, a kind of like a hear ye, hear ye sort of thing. And it's David's last words, the things that he wants Israel to remember. And if you remember what we said last week, is that David is not just saying to the people, here's how good I was. This is what kind of leader I was for you, and this is why you should be so mournful of my death and so grateful of my reign. That's not what he's saying. If you look at what David says in the passage, if you look at verse 5, he says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secured. For he will, not, will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? So you understand what David is saying there is that his security as a leader and his confidence that when he dies, there are still good things to come for the nation of Israel. His security in all those, his confidence in all those lies in the grace of God establishing a covenant with him that will never end. The covenant that God has made with David says you will always have an heir on the throne. The promise that he made to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. David is finding out that is through my line that that's going to happen. That's through my son's and grandsons being on the throne, that that's going to happen. And so that is the security that, and the confidence that David has as a leader. It's in the promise that God has given. He's depending on the grace of God who will cause his house, his line, to prosper. That's what he's saying. And so the passage that's in front of us is not just a random list of famous military captains and soldiers, what's in front of us are stories of God's grace to the nation of Israel through the military victories of valiant men. So we could look at it one of two ways. You could read it as the human eye would, as the flesh would want to read it, and just say, these are great stories of all kinds of military victories. But the text and the context is pushing us to think deeper and look at it with spiritual eyes and actually say, no, this is God's provision of grace to His people. And it's further evidence that against all odds, God is going to see to it that His people prevail in any and every circumstance. So here are the stories of grace that we're going to look at very briefly this morning. 
First, we're going to see that God supplies His grace through the efforts of His people. God supplies His grace through the efforts of His people. We start off in this passage in verse 8 with these three legendary captains. And they're people we've never met before in Scripture, but they're three legendary captains. And they've essentially, they're essentially the leaders of this special forces unit of SEAL Team 6, essentially. And the reason that they're the leaders is because they've achieved some form of notoriety for these spectacular feats that they have accomplished, or rather that the Lord has accomplished through them. Look at verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashebeth, Atakamanite. He was the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herarite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory that day. The first thing to take note of is the astounding numbers coming from these stories. There are, first of all, a collection of the most improbable victories of all time. Time when God's people probably should have died, but somehow did not. Josheb, Bashebeth, the Tachamanite. He was the chief in verse 8, it says. He killed 800 in one battle using only a spear, it would seem. No other details apparently need to be given. Apparently, if you kill 800 men at one time, you are the chief by default. No one wants to challenge your authority on really anything. All right? That guy killed 800 men with just a spear. I think he's the leader. All right? Here. The second captain in this, in this list is Eleazar. And he stands out because of a battle against the Philistines where it seems like all of Israel fled. It's just him, and apparently he's there alongside David. And they stood there, and they fought the Philistines together, and he swung his sword until his arm got so tired that his hand cramped, and that was the only reason he's still holding on to his sword. <laughs> and yet in the midst of his cramping hand, he still manages uh, to do damage to the Philistines. And then finally, there's the third captain, Shammah, there in verse 11, and he gained notoriety because he defended a bean field. Now, likely the Philistines are there, they're robbing the crop, and there's some farmer out there who has no choice but to just give them the crop that they're stealing from anyway. And he comes in to defend this bean crop, and now you might be thinking, what any normal human being would be thinking, which is why would you risk your life for lentils? They're disgusting. And that's true. At least make it worth it. If you're going to defend a bean field, make it a refried bean field. 
That would at least be decent. <laughs> Chips, it's great. It's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's actually the point. The point is that the Jews, though they ate lentils, it was not by any means a delicacy. It was necessary for a balanced diet, but it's not something that the kids are clamoring for at the dinner table. And so this might be like saying he risked his life for his people's cauliflower supply. And all God's people said, oh, right? <laughs> cauliflower supply? Yeah, essentially. There's two others mentioned there in verses 18 to 22. The first is Abishai, who becomes the leader of basically SEAL Team 2, which is sort of the still elite forces, but not quite SEAL Team 6. He's not one of the three. He's David's nephew, and he's the brother of Joab, and he killed 300 people, and he won essentially a name for himself because of the feat that he accomplished there, but still not quite what the three were. The three were and always will be ahead of the rest. And then there's Beniah, who was also a valiant man. It says in verse 20 that he struck down two Ariels, which is very similar in Hebrew to the word warrior. So it's probably he struck down two Moabite warriors. It's also similar to the word lion. So it's possible that he struck down two Moabite lions, but I don't, I don't think so. He also struck down another lion and chased him down in a snow pit. He's known for going into battle with an Egyptian man and using his own staff, only his staff, and takes the spear of the Egyptian man and, and is able to kill him in battle with his own spear. He's not as renowned as the three, but he is appointed as the head of David's secret service. But what's important about the list of these men and their accomplishments is not the individual accomplishment. And here's the story of the great thing that they did. There's a theme that, that the author is begging us to look through in order to see these stories. And if you look at verse 10 and verse 12, it's right there. It says, as he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And then in verse 12, it says, but he took his stand in the midst of a plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. Now, it would be easy in a passage like this if the goal is to celebrate the military accomplishments of these mighty men to say, look at what they did. Look at how impressive this was. You can go right now and rent millions of movies about the exploits and the various things that SEAL Team 6 has done around the world, and you can be impressed, and all of them will hail them as heroes, and maybe rightfully so, because of the great victory that they accomplished. But that's not the way the Bible lifts up the men who did these things. Instead, it says, the Lord accomplished a great victory that day. You would be mistaken if you're reading this passage and you're elevating these men to a hall of heroes. Yet the passage is intentionally wanting you to see the heroic feats that they accomplished. But it doesn't want you to merely stop there because that would be idolatry. What it wants instead is for you to come back to the reality is that God is actually at work in and through His people to accomplish the salvation for you, nation of Israel. There is a question that's bound to be on the mind of every man, woman, boy, and girl 
who's hearing that these are the last words of David. And that is, okay, but what happens now? David was the king. He was God's chosen one. He was placed on the throne by God himself, and now he's going to die. So what happens now? Do we just, we just move on? How can we be sure that God is still going to uphold his people even after his king passes? These stories are meant to tell you exactly why you can be confident in that. Because these men that are fighting on behalf of the nation of Israel are put there by God himself. God's grace to you, nation, is brought to you by all of these people that He has put in the path of battle and has given victory. Remember Hannah's prayer at the beginning of 1 Samuel, which becomes the theme of the entire book and is the lens that you look through when you're reading 1 and 2 Samuel. Remember she prays this in verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. How is it that his hand was cramping and he was still able to hold onto the sword and fight off all those Philistines? How was he able to kill 800 Philistines with just a spear? Not by might shall man prevail. The reason that these victories took place was because the Lord gave them. It was his grace to you, people. In our prouder moments, when we look back on those days of glory that we have or had, we will often fail to acknowledge that you and I are here today by a series of God's graces to you. You are not here by your own strength. You are not here because you were so good and because your intellect has brought you to this place. You are here because of the grace of God. You woke up this morning with a heartbeat and with air in your lungs. Blood was pumping through your veins and your brain started receiving signals. I guess it never stopped, but it was receiving signals from your nervous system as you got up out of bed this morning. This is an example of God's common grace to you. But it's not just these everyday examples. There's other things that happen every single day to you. You have food in your pantry. God's grace. You have people in your life who have done wonderful things for you. Things you may never even know about. That's God's grace to you. You have stories of overcoming adversity that you never thought would end. How did you do that? How were you able to overcome those adversarial circumstances? God's grace to you. Did it take effort on your part? Did you have to get up and study? Did you have to get up and work? Did you have to get up and apply all of those things that you had learned to your day? 
Absolutely you did. You had to actually do it, just like these mighty men had to actually go into battle and hold on to a spear and stab people. Gruesome, but still, they had to until they were exhausted. They really were very talented men in the field of battle, but their talent and their energy were also examples of God's grace that he had given to them. This passage is attempting to take our eyes beyond the mere physical provision of military victory through these courageous heroes and lift them up to a God who has provided the grace for the nation of Israel to persevere against impossible odds. All of these are examples of God's grace. But we also see here that the gifts of God's grace should be returned to Him with thanksgiving. Gifts of God's grace should be returned to Him with thanksgiving. There's another three uh, of the 30 men that are listed here. They remain anonymous. We don't really know their names at all, but it seems to be another three that are called out. And we see that in verses 13 to 17. And, and we see it where David expresses this longing in his heart. This is probably at a time when he's running from Saul. And he says in verse 15, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So as I said, it's probably a time when David is running from Saul earlier on in his life. And David thinks back to his homeland and anybody, any homebodies out there kind of know the sentiment that David is feeling right now, that the water abroad does not taste as good as the water at home. There's something about the way mama makes the grilled cheeses that's just better than the way everybody else does. And so David is sitting there longing for the water at home, and he voices this out loud in a moment of desperation. No water is as good for me as the water that is at home. So his men, valiant as they are, hear him expressing this feeling of discontentment, and they want nothing more than to make their king content. And so they leave the camp secretly. They break into the gates of Bethlehem undetected. They grab a pitcher of water or a canteen of some kind. They fill it to the brim and they seal it and they come back to David. And what does David do? In verse 16, he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. Now it seems at first when you look at that, that how rude is that? Hey, these guys risk life and limb and they bring this canteen of water. David, here, we, we heard your complaint and we got you water from Bethlehem. And he goes, thanks guys. And he just dumps it on the ground right in front of him. Which you think would be just the root. See, he got it. All right. There's humor in it. Uh, it just seems like the rudest thing that anybody could do, but, but actually his response is far from harsh. Look at what he says in verse 17. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore we would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. David is actually honoring their sacrifice. He's actually honoring what they've done. And because what he sees that they have done is risk their life, he treats the water as a blood offering. How many kings 
are worthy to receive a blood offering. None. David sees what these people have done, and he says that is an offering, and because it is an offering, it is fit only for the Lord to drink, and so he pours it out as a dedication to the Lord. He's not being harsh to the men, he's elevating their sacrifice to something that only is worthy of the Lord to consume. This is even beyond something that I should be drinking. This is unworthy of the Lord's servants. Perhaps in this, there's something that we should also consider. How much is your life spent in gratitude to God for the things that He has given to you? Whether it's people or things, or even challenges and trials that He's brought your way. Things that have been impossible to overcome. Things that you thought you never would overcome. And yet, then one day, God gives you the victory over those particular trials or challenges. How much of your life then is spent in thanksgiving? What I've found is that it is very easy to complain. I don't know if you're like me, but I can look at all of the things in my life and I can begin to navel-gaze and I can start to think about all the things that have gone wrong, all the things that I wish I had done or didn't do that I should have done, all of the things that were against me, maybe it's people, maybe it's circumstances, whatever it is. I can think about how unfair it is. I can complain about it to others. And I will be quick to sit down with others and go, here's my laundry list of grievances. How often are we the kinds of people that sit down and list for others all the many things that we're thankful for? How many of those trials that you've gone through has God actually brought you through? How many of those circumstances has God given you the grace to overcome? How many people have been put in your life to help ensure your success? Not people that tear you down, but people that build you up, that encourage you, that pray for you, that help you, that always seem to be there when you need them most. Those, the names of those people sometimes fail us. They fall away and we refuse to think about them. And yet, in reality, those are gifts of God's grace to you. You understand that even the trials that have come your way, He has done, to, as the song said earlier that we sung, to burn away the dross. It's a period of refinement that He's brought you to in those trials of suffering. But do you also see that in the midst of those trials that can sometimes weigh us down, that there are a host of people also around you willing and ready to share that burden with you? Perhaps we as God's people should be quicker to express gratitude and thanksgiving and complaints and griping. Hopefully there is an attitude that you're seeing here from David where he's looking at everything with spiritual eyes. Well, on the surface, this is just a canteen of water. A, a kindness that somebody has done for you by going to get it from a place that you really like and has brought it to you to give to you so that you might drink it. And on the surface, it's just, it's just a canteen of water. But you understand, David is looking beyond that canteen to the spiritual significance of what's actually taken place. 
This is God's gift of grace to me to help me see that the people that are around me are here for my support, for my upbuilding, for my protection. And they're willing to do anything to ensure my success. This gift is worthy of God alone. It's looking at everything through spiritual eyes and seeing the gift that God, of, of God's grace that He brings through other people. But finally, we see God's grace transcends even our worst offenses. God's grace transcends even our worst offenses. There's this list of men that I'm not going to go through and read because, like Jeremy, I would butcher the names. <laughs> I'm there with you. <laughs> it's like, what? Uh, but you see at the very end of this list, verse 39, it's capped off by one name. Uriah the Hittite. Now Uriah, of course, was the man that David stole his wife and then in an attempt to cover up his sin, sent him to the front lines of battle to have him murdered. Do you think it's a coincidence that this list ends with the name Uriah the Hittite? No one, after chapter 11, can look at the name Uriah the Hittite and not think just what 10, 12 chapters earlier what David did to Uriah the Hittite. And now he took one of these men, his own men, and had him murdered so that he could have his wife. But I think Uriah's name here at the end is just a reminder of how you should understand this passage that comes before his name. This is not a story about a hall of heroes of people that you should celebrate and cherish and bow down to and revere and think to yourself, oh man, what are we going to do once these mighty men of old, these men of renown, die? No, instead, what you should see is that David here is king and the Lord has done great things in surrounding him by terrific people and has given him grace upon grace to ensure the success of his kingdom. And this story is not about the might of David or the might of his men. This story is about the grace of God both to David and to the nation of Israel that He has supplied time and time again, yes, even in spite of the many ways in which the men turned their back on the Lord. Even David himself. God has continually supplied more than we could ask or imagine, more than any of us deserves. You understand that what we're celebrating on Sunday morning as we come together is the great-great-great-grandson of this man David who came into the world as truly God, truly man, who took on our sin having lived a perfect life, took on our sin and bore the wrath of God on the cross that we might be forgiven of sin. In spite of our many offenses against God, He is still the one that takes up the mantle of our forgiveness and dies on our behalf that we might have not only forgiveness of sin, but then three days later rises that we might have eternal life. 
You understand that this passage, as a means of delivering to David and to the kingdom of Israel God's grace, is a sign that He will not stop giving graces to His people until the day comes when He Himself will take on the flesh of a man and bear His own wrath that they might have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. So this passage is a sign to the nation of Israel, I have not forgotten my covenant promise that I made with David. I'm still true to it, and I'm still going to honor it, and I'm still going to see it through. And in spite of what all the difficult circumstances may look like, in spite of a nation being surrounded by 800 people, or one man being surrounded by 800 people, I am more than capable of delivering on what I've promised. And what we find out in the New Testament is the promise has been fulfilled. So then what does that tell us, New Testament church, as we're sitting here celebrating the resurrected Christ who has promised to us that He is going to return one day from heaven and raise the dead? Can you trust that promise? But on every turn, you're tempted not to trust. At every turn, you're tempted to say, you know, I'm looking around at the world around me, and I turn on the news and I see this thing happening over here, this war breaking out over there, and that happening over there. We can't define man or woman anymore, and we've gone crazy. How much further can we go? And there's a temptation to be drawn into despair, not just by personal circumstances that you go through of suffering, but also global circumstances that we're now privy to, that maybe we didn't even want to know. And isn't there a temptation to go, now would be a really good time to come back. There's a point where sometimes you start to lose faith. But what the Old Testament is here for, what these stories of the men of renown is here to provide, is evidence that God is faithful to His promise now and always. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He will not change. God has continually supplied to us more than we deserve, not only in the resurrection of Christ and the gift of forgiveness and eternal life, but also in our daily lives. So maybe you sit there in unbelief and maybe you think, I don't know what to make of this Christ. You understand what is being offered to you right now is forgiveness and eternal life. How do you respond to His patience with you? Do you understand that in spite of your lifetime of sin, up until this point, God has been abundantly patient with you. He's not killed you. He's not smacked you down. In fact, He's brought you to this place to hear the truth of His Word and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do you respond to His patience? By repentance, by faith, and by worship. Maybe you sit there in sin. And maybe you're a believer in Christ, but you're entrenched, you're ensnared, you're got in the trap. And you look around at your life and you go, I believe in Jesus, but I am woefully short. And I'm caught in the snares of addiction. And there seems to be absolutely no way out. What you need to hear is the good news of 
forgiveness. Can you possibly fathom that in the midst of the trap of sin that it has you ensnared in, God is saying to you, I forgive you? That all of your sins were in Christ's future when He died. So it's not as though He didn't know them. He knew every single one of them. And He says, I forgive you. What would it be like then to walk out of this room not wallowing in self-pity, but actually enjoy? That's what He wants for your Christian life. is not constantly wallowing in self-pity, but repenting of sin and genuinely expressing thanksgiving and joy for the forgiveness that can be found only in Christ. Do you understand? That's what it means to believe and trust in the good news of Jesus. Is that you actually trust that He forgives me I know what I've done. I know what my life looks like. I know how miserable it is. And yet, He forgives me. How would it change your relationship with the Lord if you were constantly overjoyed by that reality? Brothers and sisters, that's what He wants. Stories of your brilliance or your wisdom or your strength or your prowess, however short-lived that may be, however minuscule like JV tennis that may be, all of those things are God's abundant grace to you. So what kind of life should we live when we look around at the many people and at the many things that God has given to us by His grace, we should look at them with gratitude. Be grateful. Celebrate what God has done. Count your blessings. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.